G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. But we are going to be focusing today on some areas which are pretty exciting. We're going to be talking about what the heavens declare, what astronomy might say about God and creation. Our special guest over this next hour is Dr. Mark Harwood, who's focused his postgraduate studies many years ago on radio telescopes and computer techniques for antenna design and measurement. Well, he went on to play a key role in the development of Australia's national satellite system. He's now retired from the aerospace industry, where he was general manager of strategy and planning for the Optus satellite business, and is now part of the team at Creation Ministries as a speaker and as a scientist. Now, these days, he has uh, oversight of speaker development, uh, the program both in Australia and also in the Singaporean uh, context as well. He's joining us to be part of this conversation. Hello, Mark Howard. Welcome along to 2020. Good morning, Neil. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, Mark, excited about what will happen over this next hour because there are a lot of questions that get raised uh, and usually it's because of the headlines that we'll read in the media. The questions that people are asking about astronomy, about our solar system, about the universe and wanting to invite listeners to be a part of this conversation today. But this has been a long time, and I'm not sure lifelong, but uh, a long-time passion of yours, uh, looking into what's happening in space. Uh, Aerospace is your industry, isn't it? That's right. Well, I've uh, had a a love of astronomy ever since I was a young boy. But it's um, interesting that the psalmist in Psalm 19 said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And indeed they do. And the more that we look at the stars, the more we examine our solar system, the moons, the planets, we just find the unmistakable evidence of design, of everything consistent with what the Bible describes in Genesis as the origin of the universe. And that comes as a surprise to some people because they think astronomy is a sort of open and shut case. It just supports the evolutionary story, but that's not so. Well, there might be those listening to our conversation today and a question comes to mind, a doubt, a question. Uh, You've heard alternatives. You want to have some sort of answers to those today. Well, let me invite you to join into our conversation, uh, taking questions about what's happening with this whole debate between creation and evolution. And as we talk about space, as we talk about our solar system, as we talk about life on planet Earth, what are these things saying as they declare the glory of God? And you might be thinking, well, hasn't science superseded those religious notions of faith and believing that there is a God and there is a creator? Well, you might like to make your uh, two bobs worth today. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. When it comes to these sorts of things, Mark, sometimes people feel like uh, our faith is superseded by science. And isn't it the fact that the bigger the radio telescopes get and the further we can see into space, that somehow or other that confronts our faith? Well, that's the way it's presented, it seems, in the popular press. It, it always is couched in terms of how 
the observed evidence is supporting the evolutionary story of how we got here. But, you know, it's interesting that um, if you look at just the data and look at it through a different set of glasses, a different way of looking at the world, beginning with the assumption that the Bible is God's word and it's therefore true, you actually see that the evidence supports what we see as the recorded history of all time, starting in the book of Genesis. So this works the same way looking into space as it does when you're looking at, say, fossils in the ground. Uh, it depends on which lens you're looking through. It depends on uh, what worldview you're approaching That's the true. evidence with. That's true. That's true. But there's a very important distinction in science that people often don't grasp. And the distinction is that the kind of science which gives us the amazing technological advantages that we all just take for granted things like computers and mobile phones and communication satellites and so on. Um, that kind of science is based on observable, repeatable experiments, things that you can do. Another scientist somewhere else can conduct the same experiment, confirm it, perhaps find an error made or whatever. But that's how real science progresses and develops. But the other kind of science we hear a lot about is what you could call historical science. Now, in historical science, the scientist looks at evidence in the present and he makes up a story about the past to try to explain what he's observing in the present. But something interesting happens, Neil, when a scientist does that because, and it's inevitable if you think about it, he engages his belief system about the origins of what he's looking at. So if a scientist looks at a little fossil, if he believes the evolutionary story with its millions and millions of years of unguided random processes, then he might interpret that fossil and think, you know, I wonder where it fits in the long, slow progression from that first primordial cell all the way up to complex organisms like you and me. He might ask, how many millions of years ago did it live? So what he believes influences how he interprets the evidence he's looking at. But on the other hand, if that scientist is a Bible-believing Christian, he looks at a little fossil and he might think, you know, this could well have been laid down as a result of Noah's flood, which probably deposited pretty much the whole of the fossil record around the world today. Now, that's a dramatically different interpretation of exactly the same piece of evidence. We are taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Jason in Dolby. Hello, Jason. Welcome along to 2020. Jason, can you hear me? Jason in Dolby? Jason. Hi, Neil. How are you? Good. Jason, you need to turn your radio down in the background. Yes, it's down. Okay, what are your thoughts? Do you have a question for our guest today? Yes, my thoughts. On the weekend, I watched two movies, The Time Machine and Back to the Future, and it just sparked my theory that I had for a long time. If they were ever to create something that could travel a space-time continuum and went back, they would see Noah's Flood, the creation, and... That's all. Mark, Mark, your thoughts on uh, space-time continuums and time machines? Well, you know, Jason, we don't actually need a time machine because God has given us his eyewitness account of all history right from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And you're absolutely right. When we read in Genesis, we find the opening chapter talks about God creating everything in six normal length, 24-hour days, just like the days we experience now. And uh, we read about the global catastrophic flood and and Noah and... uh, uh, his family and all the animals with him on the ark survived, but uh, all the other land-dwelling, air-breathing creatures died in that flood. So our time machine is actually God's historical record. Yes, I believe that, but just for 
those that are evolutionist atheists and if they ever I don't know if they are working on anything to do with time machines or not but I think if they ever did that it would be very quickly squashed because it would just prove God's word as accurate yeah well I'm sure you're right it would prove it but there are some uh, fundamental philosophical problems with building time machines. We can't go backwards in time. Time just moves forward, and uh, it, of course, is moving towards God's ultimate purposes in all of creation. Well done, Jason from Dolby. Thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. We are taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's just dwell for a moment on one of those challenges that comes when people talk about the Genesis account and whether you take that as history or some people say it's poetic and it's uh, you know it's got all sorts of other meanings. But how important is it, Mark, to actually acknowledge Genesis as an historical account? I think it's tremendously important, Neil, because what we're talking about here is God's very plain, straightforward account of what he did. These are God's words. And if we decide uh, on our own batch that these are not true and that we have a different history, a better history... We're effectively telling God that he's misleading us or, at worst, that he's a liar. So it's actually about the authority of the word of God. So we need to start with an understanding that God is a God of love, that he does not deceive us, he would never mislead us, and he's given us a very clear, straightforward account of what he actually did at the beginning. And if we start with that, we have a whole framework with which you can understand the world around us. But most importantly, we can understand the gospel message. Because if Adam had not brought death into the world through his rebellion, there's actually no need for Jesus to have gone to the cross. It's as fundamental as that. So the millions and millions of years we hear about actually undercut or erode the gospel message. So for Christian believers, and I think I'd be reflecting what many people often think, is that uh, they say, I'm a Christian believer. I've had an experience with God. I've had a, an encounter with God. I know God is real. But the things I learned in school sometimes create doubts. The things I've learned in school, there are some Christian believers who will say, well, we try to incorporate that scientific uh, learning with the way that our faith works. But, it, it, you know, I guess it's a, a learning process uh, to understand just where it fits in context, believing Genesis to be history. Well, Neil, perhaps I could share some of my own personal history because that will help illuminate this. I became a Christian when I was just 11 years old and I grew up in a Christian household for which I'm extraordinarily grateful, but in a denomination which did not have what you might call a high view of the scriptures. So I grew up assuming that God used evolution to create. Now, that posed a number of significant problems for me. I could not understand, for instance, why Jesus went to the cross for me. I would ask my church leaders, why couldn't Jesus have just come and lived on the earth, lived a good life, shown us how to relate to our heavenly father and, and, and then been transfigured up into heaven? Why the agony of the cross? Sadly, they couldn't answer me because they too believed that God used evolution to create. So it was only when I understood that the opening chapters of Genesis are actual, true history, things which actually took place, and Adam's rebellion brought death into the world, then I understood the gospel. I understood my faith. Now, I was still a Christian, even though I believed in evolution. But when I understood the, the truth of God's word from the beginning, it was just such a transformational experience for me in terms of strengthening my faith. 
Well, you might like to contribute to our conversation today. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Dr. Mark Harwood from Creation Ministries. We're talking about creation. We'll discuss evolution if there are questions related to that. And today, a focus on what the heavens declare. As our special guest is a satellite expert, and we're talking about space, our solar system. We want to get on to some other topics that have been in the news of recent times too, but we are taking calls. Let's hear from Philip in Adelaide. Hello, Philip. Welcome along. Hello. My name's uh, Philip from Adelaide. just wanted to uh, share the thoughts um, regarding uh, the Earth being at the same distance from the sun as it goes around the orbit. If it goes 100 kilometres either way, I'm guessing we either freeze or heat up. And I'd just love your thoughts on that because I find it very hard to believe that it just happens. In, there indeed. must be some reason or some person behind it, the person that I've come to know as God. Yes, Philip, you, you're absolutely right. The evidence for design in our solar system is just abundant everywhere we look. And the fact that the Earth is such an ideal environment for us to live in is just an example of that. So where the Earth is is called, um, in the usual astronomical terms, is called the habitable zone. It's uh, an area that's not too close to its star so that it doesn't get too hot, so that water would just uh, boil and become steam. It's not too far away so that water would freeze and be ice. It's just in the right kind of range, if you like, the habitable zone so that liquid water can exist, which is, of course, essential for life. But there are many, many other factors that uh, influence the, the beautiful um, neighbourhood, if you like, that God has created for us to live in, all of it pointing to the reality of it must have been designed. The prospect of all these things occurring by pure chance is uh, just absurdly remote. So we're looking at um, irrational faith to believe that it just happens? I, oh, look, I think so, absolutely. You see... To believe that everything happened just by chance and it was just an incredible fluke that we've ended up with this beautiful earth which has all its amazing benefits, not only the habitable zone but of course the right kind of atmosphere, its magnetic field and you know the list goes on and on of all the, the things which just happened to be in place. That requires enormous faith to think that that could have happened all by chance. Far more likely that it was of course designed and that's where all the pointers are. It requires very little faith I think to be a Christian an enormous amount of faith to, to be an atheist. Thank you. Philip from Adelaide, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. And let me just encourage listeners, and there are lots of people already calling, And uh, but let me encourage you to give us a call, 1-800-316-316. Uh, we'll be taking uh, names and numbers today if you would like to receive a year-long subscription to Creation as four issues per year. And then a, a digital subscription as well, the uh, Creation Magazine subscription. Uh, if you don't already receive it, uh, some people already receive it, uh, that's fine. You probably won't qualify. But if you don't receive it yet, uh, you'll be able to uh, access that opportunity today as a caller into our talkback conversation. Our special guest is Dr. Mark Harwood. We're talking about astronomy. We're talking about space You might have a question about creation, a question about evolution. 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Ross is at Midway Point in Tasmania. Hello, Ross. Welcome along. Hello. Ross, what are your thoughts or do you have a question for our guest? Uh, I've got a question. Um, One of the things that um, 
evolutionists um, say, as I understand it, is that um, there's not enough light, there's not enough time for the light to uh, transfer or to move from where the stars are now at the outer perimeter of the universe uh, to, to us in that 6,000 odd years. That's a really good question, Ross, and one that comes up quite frequently. It's interesting, a lot of people have used this puzzle of distant starlight as an excuse for rejecting God. But, you know, a far, I think a far wiser strategy is to say, Lord, I don't know how you made the universe so big in such a short time, but your word says you did, so I will believe it. Now, it turns out that there are some exceptionally good, robust creationist cosmologies that explain this problem. But it does kind of play with your mind a bit. So uh, if you'll allow me to play with your mind. Um, And the reason it does is because we are talking about things which are not intuitively obvious to us as we move about day by day on this planet. And, you know, Einstein um, developed the theory of relativity, which tells us that space, time and matter are all interconnected. In fact, you can't have any one of those without the other two. But he also demonstrated that time was not a constant throughout the universe. Mm -hmm. Now, that's kind of, um, how on earth can that be? But it's actually been experimentally demonstrated to be true. And I can give you an example. If you took an atomic clock and took it to the top of a high mountain, um, an identical atomic, atomic clock at sea level would run slower than the clock at the top of the mountains. So time gets distorted by gravity. It also gets distorted by movement. You have relativistic time dilation, it's called. And there's actually a third mechanism called cosmological. If you stretched out space, then you would likewise distort time. So there are at least three different ways that we can see uh, time running at different rates in the universe. Now, fascinatingly enough, in the Bible, there are about a dozen different references to God stretching out the heavens. We read about it in Isaiah, in the Psalms, in Jeremiah, a number of other places. So on the fourth day of creation, or one other thing I should add, in that little description of the fourth day in Genesis chapter 1, there's a little phrase that appears and it says, and it was so. And it implies that God had completed his act of creation. So on the fourth day of creation, uh, God stretches out the, the heavens to their vast extent. He creates the sun, moon and the stars. And it was so. It was all done. Now, it turns out that if you stretch space over such a vast extent in such a short time, you massively distort time. So at the outer edges of the cosmos, there could well have been billions of years of time elapsing in one Earth day on planet Earth. Now, you can imagine then that that has given enough time for the light from distant stars and galaxies to reach the Earth so that on the evening of the sixth day, as Adam and Eve looked up at the stars, presumably holding hands, um, they would have looked up and seen pretty much the same stars that we see today. So it really is true when the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God, the stars show forth his handiwork. Amen. Mm. Ross, thank you so much for your great question today here on 2020. And you might have other questions, questions that have been niggling at you for many, many years, perhaps. Questions you've always wanted answers. And I must say, uh, what a fabulous, clear presentation of that uh, that answer that you just gave there, Mark. Just fabulous. Sometimes people talk about starlight time. 
and uh, just a great a great answer mm. and uh, God stretching out the heavens That's because right. uh, when we hear from people like Ross who say uh, uh, or was it the earlier caller uh, the uh, you know the extent of the universe the outer perimeter well, we don't know where the outer perimeter is we don't know how big the universe is do we That's true that's right that's right we can measure so far but who knows what's beyond Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you. Our special guest is Dr. Mark Harwood from Creation Ministries, a satellite expert. We're talking about all sorts of things to do with space today. So one of those rare opportunities to ask the sorts of questions that you might have when it comes to space. And here we are on little old planet Earth and life is flourishing Mark, let me ask you about some of the things that have been coming in the headlines of recent times, Uh, you know, with the development of radio telescopes and all of the ways that we can explore space. uh, The idea of uh, these almost regular stories that come out now that, uh, you know, uh, an obscure little planet has been discovered somewhere and it may be just like planet Earth Mm. and it may have life on it. It may be able to uh, support life because there's potential for water. Sometimes they're called exoplanets. Uh, You've been looking at those headlines too. How does a Christian respond to those sorts of thoughts that there might be life on other planets? Well, Neil, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? And isn't it fascinating how people are so keen to find out what is the truth of our origins? Where did we come from? And they'll search everywhere other than the word of God, it seems. But it is true. People have found planets orbiting other stars. And in fact, um, as of about now, something like three and a half thousand planets have been confirmed orbiting stars within our own Milky Way. And presumably they're in other galaxies, too. But they're too far away for us to detect, at least at this stage. So some scientists have come up with some very clever technology, all based on, I should add, Uh, observable, repeatable experiments. That's the operational science we talked about earlier on. And this stuff is really, really clever. They can detect a planet orbiting a star through a number of different techniques. And there was a a program that NASA established um, called the Kepler Space Telescope. And uh, it was launched uh, back in uh, 2009, I think. And uh, its mission was to determine how common Earth-sized and larger planets are in the habitable zone of sun-like stars. And, of course, the unwritten statement behind that is, how did we get here? You know, is, is it possible that if life evolved here on Earth, which they think happened, then maybe life would have evolved elsewhere? We just need to find a planet a bit like Earth, and uh, surely we'll find life there. So they've undertaken this uh, project, and it's, uh, it's amazing. But what's fascinating is what they've actually found. Now, the headlines would tell us, uh, and you'll often see this, you know, Earth-like planet found or Earth-sized planet found. Everybody is very excited about it and they think, you know, I wonder if it has water on it, could there be life? By the way, I should just say in passing that merely finding a planet that could sustain water in no way guarantees life. In fact, it's another whole topic, the origin of first life, which is uh, full of insurmountable barriers. But just setting that aside for the moment, um, what they've found have been solar systems of exo or or external planets that are radically different from our own. Until uh, scientists had observed other planetary systems, they assumed that our solar system was typical of what you would find. In fact, they built a whole story about how our solar system formed from a swirling cloud of dust and gas, and that formed our rocky planets close in, and then the icy 
gaseous giants further out. But what they find is something radically different. And uh, it's worth, if, if I could just spend a couple of minutes sure. describing yep. what they fa- have found. Well, there's two broad classes uh, of planets, the gaseous planets like Jupiter and Saturn, which are usually very, very large. They've found some of these planets, in many cases, uh, several times larger than Jupiter, which is a huge planet, orbiting its, uh, their parent stars in a matter of days, in some cases less than one day. Now, if you stop and think about that for a minute, that depicts an incredibly violent environment. You have a huge planet hurtling around a star very, very close, such that uh, they express this somewhat euphemistically as a mass transfer takes place, which, in other words, means the star is eating the planet. So this planet's not going to survive very long as it hurtles around very, very close to its parent star. But one of the first conclusions you reach from that is that it could not have been there for very long, certainly not billions of years, because it would have been eaten up by now, long since. These they call red-hot Jupiters. And then there's another class of planets, which are rocky planets like the Earth. And many of those are found to be very, very close to their parent star also and uh, orbiting very, very quickly. Now, what happens when a rocky planet gets close to its star is that it tends to get locked to the star. So one side always faces the star. So it'd be like having permanent day. It'd be very hot on that side. The other side is in permanent night. And now that's hardly conducive to life because you've got very hot and very cold regions. Life could only possibly be sustained on the boundary between the two called the Terminator. So it's so unusual that um, one astronomer said this, we are now beginning to uh, understand that nature seems to overwhelmingly prefer systems quite unlike our own solar system. So our solar system is, in some sense, a bit of a freak and not the most typical kind of system that nature cooks up. Okay, we live in a freak solar system. Uh, we live on a freak planet. Indeed. And, uh, and that's the interesting thing. And here we are talking today and people listening to us all over Australia. And uh, that says something, it speaks volumes about who we are and even affirms why we might be here because we're talking about God as creator. Uh, we're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Julie on the Gold Coast. Hi, Julie. Welcome along. Hi, how are you going? Good, Julie. What are your thoughts? Do you have a question for Dr. Mark? Oh, yeah. I listen to a lot of um, Ken Hoven I have in the past. You know Ken Hoven? Yes, yes. He's a creation scientist. Yep, yep. And he ended up in jail, but anyway. Um, Yeah, so he reckons a lot of stuff happened at the flood. And I'm just wondering what um, what the doctor thinks about that. Yes, there would have been a lot of things occurring at the time of the flood, obviously here on planet Earth. Um, some people have uh, suggested that maybe the flood was triggered by um, a bombardment of, um, of comets or meteors uh, that fractured the Earth's crust, which um, set in motion runaway processes, one called uh, catastrophic plate tectonics. You'll find articles on our website at creation.com uh, about that mechanism. It's very hard to reconstruct the past when we didn't observe it, Um, So we can't be dogmatic about these things. All we can do is observe the evidence that we can see in the present and knowing what we know from the Bible, what actually happened in history uh, to the extent to which God has revealed that to us, we can then build models of what might have happened um, around such things as the flood. 
But we can never be 100% sure of the details. As I said, we didn't observe them. So long as our models, though, are consistent with what God says in his word and are consistent with what we can observe today, then I believe those models are fair game. And there's quite a lot of those. Okay. And do you think that when God spoke everything into being, he used the Hebrew language and every 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet? Now, that's an interesting um, question. I have uh, there's really nothing in the scriptures that tells us what language uh, Adam and Eve, for instance, would have spoken right at the beginning. Um, some scholars think that uh, it probably was Hebrew, and uh, if uh, and but we'll never know for sure. The scriptures are silent on that. Let's take some calls, Mark, because uh, some uh, listeners have been waiting very, very patiently. Let's hear from Philip in Bankstown in Sydney. Hello, Philip. Welcome along to Twenty Twenty. Hello. Yes. Hi, Philip. What is your question for Dr. Mark Harwood today? Yeah, well, Doctor, I'm not too sure how to ask this question. Uh, You might be able to help me ask the question. Uh, In in the New Testament, for instance, uh, Christ, you know, he, you know, healed people. And, uh, for example, you know, I I think he says on a number of occasions, uh, go and sin no, your sins are forgiven you, go and sin no more. Uh, So, in light of that, why did Christ have to die? Because he could forgive sins before he went to the cross. But Jesus' death on the cross was the mechanism by which the price was paid. So what's happening there, I believe, is that Jesus is giving that instruction uh, to that person. But what God did on the cross was to lay on Christ the weight of sin for all mankind for all of eternity. So it's up to us now in, uh, in, in this day and age to accept or reject God's free gift of salvation. So, but without Christ's sacrifice, then that mechanism is not in place. You see, God is a holy, just and righteous God and no sin can stand before him. It had to be paid for. But up until then and at Jesus' time, there was the, uh, the sacrificial system that the Jews had that covered their sin, but it wasn't until Christ died that it was actually fully paid for. Philip from Bankstown, thanks so much for your question today and an important one because uh, when we think of miracles, I mean, that's another challenge, isn't it, for people who want to be uh, just evolutionist inclined because the idea of miracles, which is separate from the idea of salvation because there were miracles that were happening right from the very beginning. The creation, I guess you could call a miracle. So miracles is separate to uh, this idea of salvation, but uh, the idea of the cross, which is another big discussion uh, perhaps for another day. The whole of uh, of creation week, Neil, uh, is a week of miracles, and what it illustrates is God's power. So I look on it that if God can speak the universe into being in just six normal length days, then turning water into wine or, uh, or any of the miracles, healing people, raising Lazarus from the dead, all of these things are entirely possible to such a God. And, of course, there are a couple of occasions where Jesus puts it all into context about forgiving sins and miracles. Uh, at one point there, uh, he asks, as, uh, as a, uh, a cripple is being lowered into the room, he says, which is easier for, uh, for me to say your sins are forgiven or be healed and of course everyone's expecting it's oh of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven but so just so that Jesus could affirm that that was the important thing that he was here to uh, communicate uh, he healed that beggar 
Yes. And uh, they were raised from their bed. So uh, those sort of contexts are really important as we understand uh, miracles and the purpose that Christ came uh, to this earth. Uh, we are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Joel in Mwollomba. Hello, Joel. Welcome along. Joel, are you with us? Joel, we might have lost you. Let's hear from Nathan in Shepparton in uh, Victoria. Hello, Nathan. Welcome along. Yes, good day. How are you going? Very well. Nathan, what are your thoughts? Do you have a question for Dr. Mark Harwood? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, basically, I guess where I was sort of coming from is, you know, there's been a lot of controversy over the old thing of um, man sort of actually landing on the moon and that kind of thing. And uh, the reason that I ask that is because I think, well, you know, if God had made, uh, made the Earth um, our habitable sort of planet kind of thing, would have he... Uh, really have allowed man to have probably have discovered um, the moon to the point of um, exploring it as though, you know, you hear of talk of um, space stations being built so that, you know, yeah, people well, can uh, can make it up there and take travels up to the moon and things like that. I just wonder whether it's, you know, whether it's, it's really happened or, you know, whether there's something sort of biblically speaking that could um, sort of verify anything around that topic. Yeah, Nathan, that, that's a good question. Um, but in Genesis, when God made man, he gave us dominion over the creation. And uh, that was a, an authority um, and a mandate which has never been withdrawn. So man was is invited, if you like, to examine how the creation works, to come to discover um, how God actually created, not so much how he created it, but how things operate in our universe. In fact, one very famous scientist said that doing science was like thinking God's thoughts after him. So exploring different places and exploring the moon and so on is all within that mandate. And man uses his creativity and intelligence to build rockets and spacecraft and what have you that can land on the moon. I've absolutely no doubt those things definitely happened. In fact, there are uh, things called corner reflectors on the surface of the moon, which bounce laser beams back from, uh, from the Earth. So they definitely are there, and they got there because the Apollo missions uh, deposited them. So I think the exploration of space and the exploration of the planet on which we live is entirely consistent with God's invitation to us, or his mandate, if you will, to uh, have authority over all that he created. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, I've sort of never really looked at it from that perspective, so that sort of um, yeah sheds a bit of light on that. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those questions that, you know, I guess because of my lack of knowledge of these things that you sort of, you know, you beg to differ to ask that question. And um, Yep, no, that's fine. Yeah. yeah Thanks, Nathan. So, no, that, that sounds like it, uh, it actually <laughs> answers that quite nicely. Well done, Nathan from Shepherd, and thanks for being part of 2020 today. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation. Uh, Interesting when you talk about man's dominion over the creation. I wonder how far that dominion extends. Do we have dominion over the universe? I mean, that's a that's a big uh, it's a big ask, isn't it? But Mark, uh, your thoughts on the extent of this dominion? Because if we talk about creation, are we just talking about our planet Earth and uh, maybe the easy to reach uh, places like the Moon? Look, I guess in principle. Um, if we had the technologies and were able to land on exoplanets, then why not? But in fact, what you discover is that the distances are so vast um, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's actually practically impossible for us to do that. But the sense in which our dominion does extend over the whole of creation is evidence that when man rebelled against God, 
and God cursed the creation as a result of that, one of the consequences is that he would have withdrawn some of his sustaining power and we now see that the universe is running down. In fact, we read in uh, Romans 8, it says that the uh, creation is in bondage to decay. Now, we observe that decay process everywhere we observe in the universe, even in distant stars. So it did have an effect. Our dominion did have an impact on the whole of creation. Uh, is the universe continuing to expand? Uh, and how does that fit with the idea of decay? Well, it, expansion is, is an interesting question. We conclude that it's expanding because we observe what's called redshift in the spectrum of different stars. That is that the spectrum appears to be shifted somewhat towards the red end of the spectrum. And the further away we observe galaxies and stars, the more redshift we see. So that's not unreasonably interpreted as meaning that the stars are receding from us. But remember, God said that he, would, he stretched out the heavens and a consequence of that stretching out would be to induce a redshift. Now, is it still expanding or not? Well, we actually don't know. There are models, cosmological models, that suggest that the, the universe is not expanding. Um, others suggest that it still is and it will continue to do so. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let me ask you about the difference between the idea of uh, creation uh, and then there's this, uh, you know, random chance. Uh, people often talk about another thing called intelligent design, and we actually link uh, the idea of a creator, the biblical God, uh, with that intelligent design. And others might like to, uh, with different religious perspectives, even put their God in in charge of uh, that intelligent design. How do you uh, how do you uh, understand uh, these different ways that people think about origins? Well, the intelligent design movement was really an attempt to get people to focus on the evidence that we can see, in other words, what science tells us. And uh, they do excellent work and they clearly illustrate with some very, very sound argumentation and observation that the evidence is all there, that the planet we live on and the living systems that inhabit it are all the result of intelligent design. Now, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest because God is all-knowing and we know from the scriptures that he is, in fact, the intelligent creator and designer. The unfortunate part about the intelligent design movement is that it remains silent on the issue of who the intelligent designer actually is. So that leaves open the prospect that it could be aliens from another planet or galaxy or something or, or who knows what. Um, but the Bible is very clear that it was God who created the heavens and the earth. We are taking calls. 1-800-316-316. Shelby is in Brisbane. Hi, Shelby. Welcome God along. God who created the heavens. Shelby, you might like to turn your radio down in the background. Uh, yes, yes, buddy. Yeah, how you going? Yeah, mate, so you had a caller on earlier, um, and he was a little bit doubtful of whether uh, anyone had landed on the moon. Well, I can assure you, I've met Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, very genuine man, and he has a very incredible outlook upon um, you know, looking at the Earth from the moon. Um, and I've also met Commander Jim Irwin, who was the 15th uh, mission, uh, who, who brought actually back the first shiny part of the moon rock. And when he retired, they, they gave him a piece of that. Um, uh, and I held that yep. little piece of uh, moon rock in my hand. Yep. It's, yeah. it's been one of those great conspiracies, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. were, were those actual, uh, you know, 
photographic uh, photography sets that uh, that showed the the moon landing. But uh, yeah. but uh, thank you very much, Shelby. Great uh, insights, and lots of people have met those astronauts that have been to the moon, and they're not. They're not in any doubt. Indeed, I have absolutely no doubt at all that those events actually took place. I know quite a deal about the aerospace industry and everything is entirely credible. They got there. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Dr. Mark Harwood, our guest from Creation Ministries, we're asking the question, what do the heavens declare? You can be part of our conversation, our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Mark, before we take any more calls, let me ask you about one of your areas of expertise, and this is in the area of measurement, measurement in space. Uh, What do measurements tell us about our solar system? Well, the most important thing I think the measurements tell us is that the solar system is not billions of years old, which is what we're told all the time, of course. <clears throat> and I think the uh, classic example of that was uh, just last year in July, the New Horizons space probe went flying past Pluto and took the first ever close-up photographs. And what they found absolutely stunned them. The surface of Pluto was so smooth which was a complete surprise. If it had been there for four and a half billion years, it should be totally pockmarked and covered in craters all over. And the lead researchers were amazed. I said, we'd never believe that we would see such a smooth surface. But, you know, they don't take into account the possibility that it may, in fact, only be a matter of a few thousand years old. And even more interesting was that Pluto has an atmosphere. Now, something so far out and so cold, the gas would have... Uh, actually frozen and collapsed down onto the surface of Pluto. So it shouldn't have an atmosphere. And the observations as they flew past revealed that it was losing something like 500 tonnes of nitrogen escaping out of that atmosphere every hour, and the atmosphere is still there. It could not clearly have been there for four and a half billion years, once again, consistent with the Bible's timeline of history. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Wendy in Queensland. Hi, Wendy, welcome along. Wendy, are you with us? Wendy, we might have lost her. Let's try Annette in Gundawindi. Hello, Annette, welcome along. Good morning. Annette, what are your, what's your question? I just want to know, is there any signs of a new heaven and earth as mentioned in Revelation? The new heavens and the new earth are going to come at the culmination of the age. And the Bible says uh, very clearly that the old earth uh, will be destroyed by fire. We read about that in, uh, in the letters of Peter. And uh, it'll be a culmination of this decaying, aging, running down earth, which is subject to the curse of sin. But the new heavens and the new earth, when they are ushered in, uh, will mean that mankind will never be able again to sin. So all of those who are... uh, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be in that new heavens and new earth. Annette from Gundawindi, thanks so much for your question. 1-800-316-316 if you have a question you'd like to pose today. And interestingly, as we talk about a new heaven and a new earth, uh, the assumption that somehow or other they're already created and will be ushered in, but... I guess this comes to the creative capacity of God, uh, given that uh, if we're expectant of a new heaven and a new earth, we're also expectant that God is going to speak those into being in the right time as well. Absolutely. And if God took billions of years of trial and error of experiment trying to get this, um, this present creation right and create man, then how can we have any confidence that he's going to be able to bring about 
a, uh, the new heavens and the new earth when that time comes. So it, it just flows on. It's once again, as we uh, discussed earlier, it's an evidence of God's power. You know, Paul, in, uh, in speaking to Timothy, uh, speaks about how he has confidence that uh, God is able to keep what he has committed to him against that day. And we can have confidence that God will fulfill all his promises to us because he is a powerful God. How do we know? He spoke the universe into being in just six days. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316. This time we have Wendy from Queensland. Hello, Wendy. Welcome back. Wendy, we thought we had you. Are you there, Wendy? Yeah. Ah, Wendy, what's your question for Dr. Mark Harwood? I just, um, I don't know um, if you've heard of, you can hear me? I, I didn't say that, that again. Ah, oh, sorry. Um, there's been a lot of people speaking, um, and even on the internet, about the flat earth. I don't know if the minister there has um, heard about that. There's all this thing about that the earth was flat and it wasn't. Have you yes. heard about that on the internet? Yes, yes, and I have. What do, you, what do you think about all that? It's getting quite... I know it is. There's lots of uh, of activity. People uh, are convincing themselves that the earth is flat. You know, the Bible teaches that um, uh, quite a number of things about the physical nature of the earth. You know, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus talks about his second coming. And in that passage, he says, on that day, and then he describes daytime activities. And a few verses later, he says, on that night, and he describes nighttime activities. But it also says that the coming of the Son of Man will be like a flash of lightning. So it's going to be something which happens in an instant, and in that instant there'll be daytime activities and nighttime activities, and that affirms the fact that we live on a spherical earth illuminated on one side by the sun, so we have a day a day side and a night side. So indirectly, Jesus is illustrating that, yes, we are on a spherical earth. That's not the purpose of his teaching, of course, but the fact that he is foreseeing that event He's foreseeing what actually will take place. We live on a spherical earth. There's no doubt of that. Thank you to Wendy from Queensland. Let's hear from Leanne on the Gold Coast. Hello, Leanne. Welcome along. Are you with us, Leanne? Leanne? We don't have Leanne. Let's try Ebony in Brisbane. Hi, Ebony. Yes, hello. Ebony, what's your question for Dr. Mark Harwood? Oh, hello, Mark, and it's lovely to um, to be listening in on this segment. I've really enjoyed what I've heard so far. I've actually discovered um, something in Genesis that I had overlooked previously, and I, I really just want to know if I have interpreted it correctly, but also if you could just expand on that a little bit for me. I'll just read um, from Genesis chapter 1, and it's verse 6. And it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And I just wanted to know whether that water that um, is above the expanse was the canopy, if you like, that was used in the flood. Um, and also if that might explain why pterodactyls could fly. I'd love to take that information back to my three sons. Okay, actually, you'll find some interesting articles on this uh, on creation.com, our website. Um, the idea of the vapour canopy was around quite some years ago. We tend not to go down that path now for a number of good reasons. One of them is that water vapour is a very, very efficient greenhouse gas. So if there was enough water vapour above the atmosphere to support enough water to flood the earth, 
um, then it would make the Earth's surface so hot that life could not survive. And uh, on creation.com you'll find uh, some articles that expand on that. Uh, Just from memory, I think if you had enough water vapour there to flood the Earth to something like a metre deep, which obviously is not going to wipe out all life, then the temperature would be uh, in the order of 100 degrees centigrade, just to give you a feel for the, the problem here. So it seems more likely that the waters above are something quite different. It could be that it's the waters above that God used to make the planets and the stars. In Psalm 148, about verse 3, I think it speaks of the uh, waters above the highest heavens praising God. Maybe, in fact, some creation cosmologists think that there could well be um, a, uh, if you like, a spherical shell of, of water high above what we can now observe uh, in the distant reaches of the heavens. Um, we can't really be sure of these things, but um, the vapour canopy idea is, uh, is really not a, a, a very solid one, and there seems to be good evidence to suggest that it was, uh, that was not the mechanism for the flood. Ebony from Brisbane, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020 and for everyone who called in and I'm sure there were many, many more listeners who enjoyed the conversation today because just eye-opening and enlightening uh, to think about these sorts of issues and given that we see so many headlines in the news that try to distract us and lead us away from an idea of a biblical foundation of the history in Genesis, that God is creator and that he has a purpose for us here on planet Earth. We have run out of time, Mark Howard, but I would love to have you in as a guest on another day and continue these sorts of conversations because uh, uh, fabulous insights today. And let me point people to the website where you can get lots of great resources talking about creation.com. It's easy to remember creation.com. That's the website of Creation Ministries International and Dr. Mark Harwood, part of that organization. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's been a great pleasure. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.